Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine has such a fun interview to share. Oh my God, I'm so glad we did this. We don't really do interviews about food very often, but when we heard about Max Lomano, we knew we had to have a chat. He is a chef and a cookbook author, and his specialty is not just veganism, it's low waste. And basically, he has figured out how to cook all the parts of the veggies and fruits that you usually throw away. Yeah, we're talking banana peels, coffee grounds. <laughs> it was so funny. Like, we both got this pitch and we were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I know. Immediately, we were like, it's so up my alley. I just like, what is it that, you know, is about some people like me that I just love the idea of using everything that I would otherwise throw away? I mean, maybe that's why all of my bookshelves are so crowded and I have too much stuff in my house because I can't throw anything away. Mm. You know, I recently got rid of like the vast majority of my books and got them on audio. The ones anyway, the ones I wanted to read. I felt like it was good activism to just like get rid of a lot of my vegan books and a lot of my cookbooks and donate them. So I don't know. Yeah, you're my idol. I can't do it, though. I go through, I have all these cookbooks. I never use them. I like, I don't even really cook. And I look at them and I think, okay, I'm going to weave them. And I look at them all and I'm like, no, I want to keep that. No, I want to keep that. No, I want to keep, like, it's it's an illness. A little bit, but you know, there are worse illnesses you can have. True. It's really fine. Very true. If I'm going to be obsessive about something, why not books? Yeah, it's totally fine. By the way, so I was recently hanging out with a whole bunch of nerds And I am not really a nerd. (laughs) And all of the nerds were talking about Star Trek. And obviously, I I know that Star Trek is like a whole whole world. It's a world unto itself. I watched the Discovery season just because Tignataro was on it, honestly. But I wound up agreeing, not only agreeing to, but also roping you in to watch all of Star Trek chronologically. Yeah, not in the chronological order they were created, but in the right. chronological order they su- are supposed to have happened. Yeah, exactly. And apparently the the first one that we're watching is everyone's like, oh, it's the worst one. It's too bad you're starting with that one. But I'm fine with that. Anyway, the very first episode, the, you know, the person who is not a human, I don't know what you call her. Sorry, everyone. Alien? Who knows better? No, she's not an alien. She's something else. But she talks about how humans still eat animals. And she's like, you know, it's just... Oh, the Vulcan. The Vulcan. Thank you. Oh, my God. I'm going to get like, we just lost 10 subscribers. <laughs> People are mad at me. There, we may lose a few more before the night is over. She's like, she's like, you still eat animals. I mean, how unethical can you possibly be? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what she says. And then this is so funny. Then she takes a bite of a breadstick and that's like the bulk of her dinner, which I just want to say I would be perfectly happy eating breadsticks for yeah, dinner. Not like, one, especially, but I could eat like 40 no, or 50. No, especially those Olive Garden ones, which are vegan, by the way. And it's like bottomless Olive Garden breadsticks. I really want that right now. Yeah, I want it right now, too. You know, it's so funny. Speaking of bread, I was talking to someone earlier and I couldn't remember what the word was for when you like do like disobedience by putting posters on the sides of buildings that make social justice points. And I was like, it's like paper pasting. And she goes, wheat pasting. And I said, you know, I was going to say wheat pasting, but then I thought it was just like something to do with bread. So anyway, apparently bread 
is the through line of my day. <laughs> I completely digress. I would like bread to be the through line of my of my life, but unfortunately, I did. I, I gave a talk this past week, and one of the things I said was that I don't think that food is the reason that people don't become vegan. And I, I said because loads and loads of people become gluten free, and you, they can't eat bread. And the whole audience laughed. I got a laugh. I want to hear about that talk, but just let me add one thing. I went to Costco the other day as a new member. And by the way, they have a pretty good selection of vegan food. I digress. I was a decent selection of vegan foods, like very good deal on Beyond Burgers. So I'm walking around and there's this shopping cart and this, you know, parents are pushing the shopping cart. There's this little boy in it and he's just going bread, bread, bread. And I was like, oh, that's what I, I thought of you. Of I was like, if Marianne had a kid, this would be her child. So anyway. The only thing better than bread is bread that has been toasted. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. But you just mentioned your talk. And, you know, I'm sure that that talk was the best thing since sliced bread. So tell us about it. Oh, that was a clever one. Very clever. We've spoken, of course, about Sherry Kolb, our beloved friend who died last year. And this was actually an event in her memory. It's been one year since she died. And the event was at uh, Rutgers Law School in Newark. That's not where she taught, but where it was. And it was a symposium. And all of the speakers were law professors, not just law professors, like the blah, 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 professor of blah, you know, like with name and the the chair and whatever. And me. So that was fun. I always like to be the least educated in the group. <laughs> and I got to talk to them. None of them are vegan. So they're not clearly I wasn't the dumbest person in the group. <laughs> Most of them are not vegan, but I get to talk about veganism to them because you know that's that's the part of sherry's life that i was most familiar with so that's where that that comment came in about i i was trying to figure out why don't people go vegan we're trying to talk about it and one of the things i said i i you know people say it's the food but i don't think it's the food you know vegan food is good and if you like being a foodie Vegans are totally capable of being foodies and and it's fine. You know, you can get obsessed with food. Loads of vegans get obsessed with food. And always, as I said before, all sorts of people go gluten-free all the time and they can't eat bread, which, you know, like that is a major, major sacrifice. And and I said that, you know, it's it, it's not the food. It, it's 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 not just conformity. It's not just that people have to be the same as all other people, though that there is something to that because we are primates. And I, I don't know what the reason is. Uh, like, I, it just perplexes me all the time. So that was, well, that's not all I talked about. I also talked about, you know, the law and, and, and the way Sherry taught about animal law and the way I teach about animal law. And, and also I talked a bit about, about the necessity defense, uh, which is being used in some of the DXC trials and has been used in other trials, which basically, you know, it's a defense in the law, varies from state to state, but it basically says that if you do something that is in order to avoid a worse harm, it's a defense, even if the thing you do is against the law, is technically against the law, it's a defense if you avoid something worse. And it's like, you know, if a person runs into a into a burning building and there's a no trespassing sign on that building, they don't get con ch charged with trespass if they run in there and save a child. I mean, that's ridiculous. You can do something that results in something better than than uh, 
than the harm you cause by breaking the law and doing it. Anyway, I talked about that and how that works or doesn't really doesn't work in the DXE trials too. So I gave it to them full bore and then and then I sat down. Full bore. But I managed to go to, yeah, I'm using, I'm using gun references now. I managed to go to New York. No, I managed to go to Newark, which is right next to New York City, and come back on the very day that New York City flooded. And I managed to make it back. So I was just grateful that I got home because there were people who were in Manhattan which really is a 15-minute train ride away, who could not get to the conference uh, because of the flooding. So wow, it was a crazy day to be traveling, and I never want to travel again. Why do people get on airplanes? I don't know. Someone recently the other day said to me, like they, they were like, Does, did the flooding have anything to do with climate change? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what do you mean? And they're yeah. like, like, it was so weird to me because this, you know, I, I just think that it, it's it's kind of mind boggling how yeah. people don't connect the very obvious dots. But uh, that's what happened. And because it is a it's a matter of connecting dots. It's not a matter of like, here's proof positive that, you know, if we hadn't like uh, invented airplanes, it would have been like this. Like it, there's. It's always just a matter of putting all the data together and seeing where things are headed. But by now, the idea that there's anybody left who doesn't think something is going very, very awry, it just boggles the mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that if if it's the same conversation that you repeated to me, that person also said something about um, about talking about fire, that fire wouldn't reach the inner city you know, wherever you, wherever you are in the world, if there's five, I mean, Lahaina, Maui just burned to the ground. Like, I know it's not a huge city, but what, why does anybody think that being in a city would stop fire from getting in? I I don't understand how people think. Right. Yeah. This was downtown Los Angeles. It was like someone who I, you know, met at a a cafe and he was telling me that I don't, I think it's safe that to think that he doesn't listen to our henna's because he's not a vegan, but he, he was talking about the fires and I was like, yeah, they were really bad. I lived in LA for a while. And, and he said, well, thankfully they wouldn't reach downtown. And I was like, do you think they'll get to downtown and be like, Whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, let's turn around, guys. I hate LA. Let's get out of here. Right, exactly. Uh, so it was just, it was a little, uh, you know, it was kind of fascinating in a sad way. I'm not like the cheeriest person today. I know you, you're not either. So uh, I'm glad Max is. Like Max is actually genuinely seems like a, a happy guy. He is the perfect person to have on today because we're both grouchy. I'm not like grouchy. We are supposed to be indefatigably positive. That is our tagline. So that was a while ago. <laughs> that was a while ago. Like oh. everything ch- 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 changes. You're out of fucks, aren't you? I Yeah, not like I, I have a few more fucks than you have. You're out of <laughs> I know you're out of them. They've been on I'm back very, order for a really long time for you. I am. Yeah, I'm very, very, very low on fucks. I have a couple stored, but like, that's it. I'm in my emergency supply of fucks. So let's get to the interview with Max before I lose any. The older you get, the fewer fucks you got. But Max Lamana. Yeah. He's going to cheer everybody up. Yeah, he, he was is. born and raised in North America. He's a self-taught chef. He's the award-winning author of More Plants, Less Waste. And you can cook this. I have to read that. 
because I, I always have trouble believing I can cook anything. Well, actually, Marianne, the, the full title was You Can Cook This, Marianne. <laughs> He's also been featured in Vogue, Food Network, The Times, BBC News, and Vice. Boasting over 1 million followers, Max has electrified social media with simple, delicious, low-waste recipes that put vegetables at the heart of his cooking. His down-to-earth, few-ingredient approach means that he advocates for low-waste living in a truly accessible way. And he will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Max. Hey, Jasmine, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. It's such a different subject matter for us. And before we get going, I am curious. You said that you recently, that yesterday you flew into New York. Is that right? I did fly into New York yesterday. From where? London. Okay, that's where you live? That's where I live now. I live there now, which is crazy for me to think. It's been a little over four years now. I lived in New York previously for about eight years, and now I've spent the last four years in the UK, in London. Oh, well, that sounds lovely. I was intrigued when we were chatting before recording by what you were telling me about some of the signs in your area. Can you tell our audience about that? Because I was like, stop, stop, stop. I want you to talk about that while we're recording because it's too good. Let's jump into that. So my wife and I moved out of London about two years ago, and we live in the countryside and just thought, why are we stuck in a shoebox in London? And I understand there's some privilege that goes alongside of that and having the ability to move out when you can and, and all those sort of things. But because we work from home and we're self-employed, we moved out and we moved to an area that is particularly and predominantly like a open kind of part of the world there, especially in the UK. And it's quite, I guess, there's some vegan restaurants and, and vegan outlook on the world and climate where we are. And six months out of the year, there are cows, horses, and some donkeys. I think there's one donkey um, <laughs> that <laughs> just the one donkey who's hanging out with all the horses. And that donkey's usually in the, the back of the pack. I feel for the donkey. But there's signs that are posted up around the area during these six months that say, you know, cows are out or we're out or cars dent, cows die. And wow. it's very in your face, you know, messaging, letting people know that, you know, drive appropriately. I can't just think that it's for the drivers who are just driving by and using their caution. I think there's also probably a little bit of a vegan message behind right? it as well. Yeah. It's like, hey, you know, your car will live, but we won't live if you hit us. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. It's like you entered a portal into like a vegan Mecca or something where people actually give a crap. <laughs> I wish there was more vegan restaurants, uh, to be completely honest. But yeah, I think my, my neighbors in the community I live in are open to plant-based options. And then, they, you know, it's not the first time they've ever heard of oat milk before. So it's an open community, you know, yeah. they're happy to have that conversation. 
Yeah, I want to talk more about that. So let's put a pin in that because I'm curious about how you go about your outreach. But before we get into that, let's sort of contextualize who you are for your soon-to-be biggest fans, because I think that our Henness listeners are going to be all over you. We hardly ever feature cooks or cookbooks anymore, but I absolutely couldn't resist interviewing you. Now, everyone listening knows that you're vegan, since otherwise it would be weird to have you on our hen house. But can you just start out by telling us what your mission is vis-a-vis wasting food? Yeah, of course. Thank you. And I and I really, I really appreciate you thinking that more and more people will will come over to or, you know, they'll listen to what I have to say after after this interview. So I really appreciate that. Um, fingers crossed. Yes. Um, I've been around food since I was a, as a child. I'm sure we all have. But my outlook and my view on food is probably a little bit different than what most people might have had as children growing up and teenagers and being young adults, depending on where you are in the spectrum of life. I've worked in restaurants for around 15 years. I've done every single job in a restaurant from washing dishes to managing restaurants. And the one thing that really kind of caught my eye having worked in restaurants was the amount of food we throw away. And I can, I still hear my mother in my head, in my ear saying, do not waste your meal. Do not scrape your food into the bin. And I can actually see the moment when I was about to do that as a kid, you know, eight or nine years old, my mom telling me not to waste my food. I don't know what I did after that point, if I sat down and continued to eat my food. But, you know, there's another there's another moment where my father wanted me to finish my broccoli and I decided to revolt and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to finish my broccoli. And he said, well, you'll sit here all night if you have to. And I said, fine. And I sat there all night and I think I fell asleep at the kitchen table. In the morning, the broccoli was still there and he chopped it up and I think he made it, put it into a meal. At the time, I wasn't vegan, so it was, you know, in scrambled eggs in some form or something. And he says, now you'll eat it, right? And I was like, okay, you didn't call my bluff. (laughs) Um, And here we are. So for me, food waste is a huge issue around the world. And my focus is to show and highlight simple and easy ways to waste less food at home. Because when we boil it down, we earn money to then spend money on food to then waste food. We, we waste around a third of the food that we bring into our home. So for me, it's about saving time, money, the resources that go into it, the labor, the water, the manufacturing, the packaging, but also the food to save that food because that food, it could be the vessel of bringing people together and enjoying a meal with your loved ones and friends. So food has a huge connection to me and bringing people together. And I know that you started all of this to save money, right? It sounds like it's really broadened in its scope since then. Tell me about that. Yeah. When I moved to New York City, you know, when I was around 20, it was the first time I was actually starting to learn to cook for myself. Prior to that, my parents would always cook meals for us. And I wasn't making any money. I was struggling between job to job to job, paycheck to paycheck. So I would literally buy what I needed, put the money away to pay for rent and transportation. And the money I used for food, I would use every single bit of my food. It was almost... I wasn't even mindful of the fact that I was, okay, I can't waste this food. It was more of, I need to save money. I can't go out to the supermarket once again to spend more money on food. So for me, it started a long time ago for me to think this way. It was all about saving money. And it still is. I I mean, I, I don't like wasting food. I don't like wasting money. I just went out for a cup of coffee and uh, my wife and I had a cup of coffee and it was around 10 or $11 
And I just think, oh my goodness, this is so expensive. And then you go into the supermarkets and you see what a carton of fresh blueberries are like six or seven dollars. And you're just thinking, what is this? Like, imagine bringing that food home and then just wasting it and throwing it away. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And given those financial limitations, you had to be a pretty imaginative cook if you were still Mm. making good food. Were you always a good cook? Ooh, was I always a good cook? No, I don't think I always was. a. No, I definitely wasn't. There have been times where I was, you know, horrible meals. What was I, what was I doing here? What, what? Yeah, I, I had to learn. I had to be creative. I had to make mistakes. And I think that's the beauty of doing what I do and having worked in restaurants is that I've learned from people who went to culinary school. I'm, I'm self-taught, but having learned from chefs and sh- some chefs who have Michelin stars, and other line cooks who have worked in other Michelin star restaurants and learning tricks and tips along the way, it's, you know, slowly you, but it's almost like, uh, how do I explain this? It's sort of like capturing what they share, those bits of knowledge and wisdom. And then you just like tuck it away and you go, oh, I'll remember this one. I'll remember how to use that next time. I'll know how to cut an onion properly next time for this. And so over time, you use these methods and these techniques. And sometimes it takes slow to get used to the, you know, the cutting of a, of a carrot or a julienne, a carrot or the dicing a, a, an onion perfectly every single time. These sort of preparation tips and tricks and just the, pro- the, the practical and, and the proper protocol for preparing food. And slowly as you do that, I think the meal starts to change, starts to shift. So I think it's always an evolving and learning experience for me. Wherever I go, if I'm cooking in a one night cooking demonstration in a restaurant or as a pop-up dinner or a supper club for a week or a cooking residency, I'm often always keeping my mind open to take in more information from other people and wisdom and hopefully apply that to my cooking. So how do you end up cooking for other people and then going online? <laughs> I, so, oh man, I feel like we could talk forever. There's so much I want to share with you for the purpose. Let's do it. Let's talk forever. Like whatever the rest of the world. Yeah, we'll end this in a few minutes and we'll just keep talking. Um, (laughs) I was working in a restaurant here in New York City and at some point I just thought I could be doing this on my own. I could be cooking for somebody else. I just know that my opportunities were greater if I stepped outside my comfort zone. And I've always been someone to kind of push myself to limits and give myself challenges. So I decided to walk away from working in the restaurant at one point. This is six years ago, actually. Six years ago around this time. And from there, I just started posting ways to reduce food waste at home, my recipes. I kind of started doing like a daily vlog, but via my Instagram stories. Mm-hmm. So people were tuning into the Instagram stories. I'd post a recipe. It wasn't recipe video. It was just like bits and bobs of what I was doing. And I was really lucky in the first sort of one to two months of walking away from the restaurant. I had a family in the Upper East Side in New York who reached out and said, we love what you do. Our family want to incorporate more plants on their plate. And we'd love you to cook for our family three times a week. And I wow. was just like, yes, this is what I need. It was, you know, so lucky. And, and I, I often find myself, if I push myself past those boundaries and I stay open-minded and hopeful, <laughs> things start to open up for me. I'm quite lucky in that regard. And slowly that un- kind of unfolded. It, it opened up. I, I didn't do that for too long because I felt I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be cooking for our family. So yeah, then social media started taking a little bit more, had a bigger bite of me and started posting more and more about food and recipes. And 
but I've always hosted supper clubs from like supper parties, like dinner parties from my apartment in Brooklyn where I was living. And friends of mine started reaching out to me in the UK. And that's when I decided, oh, I'll go to the UK and cook for people. For me, it's about cooking for other people. I love cooking for myself. I love cooking for my wife, my family, like my close group of friends, but it's about cooking for other people. That brings me real joy because that's when I get to really kind of flex my muscle, so to speak. You know, when I'm in the kitchen, I can use a little bit of flair. I can, you know, take my time in creating a dish, you know, and just elevate dishes to a whole other level. It's not what I typically highlight or share on social media because I want people on social media to see kind of the simple and easy ways to, of like cooking a meal. Whereas when I host a supper party or dinner party or have a residency, I elevate my dishes to another level. So where does low waste come in here? And what do you mean when you say low waste? How low? <laughs> low, real low. Um, I, <laughs> we'll do the rest of the interview down here. Yes, I'll do it down here. Um, low waste. I At one point, I was calling myself a zero waste chef, but I don't think we can be zero. I don't think we could be completely zero because there's waste in every chain of the process. Um, from the farm to the supermarket, to me, there's waste that is happening to that chain. So I decided, okay, let's be realistic. It's probably low. <laughs> it's low waste. And sometimes, you know, I might not use the whole entire ingredient. I might have onion skins that I put in the compost, but that goes back into a cycle. So the last, like the last line of defense for me is composting. Mm -hmm. So if I don't use everything, if I don't make the onion peels or the garlic peels or the the skins of certain vegetables into dehydrated salts or oils or powders, I usually then put it into the compost bin, which then is turned into biogas, or it is used for soil. It is composted back into the ground to use to grow food eventually. So for me, I feel that's low waste. It's putting the food back into the cycle. I never want it to be a linear system where we, we take, we borrow, we use, and then we waste, and right. that's it. It goes back into the system. So let's get into some details. First of all, the most important question, how do you eat banana peels? <laughs> I actually have some bananas right here. I can show you how, how we do that. Well, bananas are being eaten in other parts of the world, mostly in like Southeast Asia. They're eating banana peels. They use them in their recipes. Why aren't we? Why aren't we thinking more broadly in that way? And so I have one recipe in my book that shows you that you can use banana peels. I don't, I'm not here saying, okay, eat banana peels every single day of the week. Every time you have a banana, eat the banana peel. It is simply there in the book to highlight that you can use ingredients that you typically wouldn't see as an edible ingredient, an ingredient that you would use in your meal. So for me, it's about making sure that the banana first is organic. I, I try to do my best with sourcing organic or locally fresh ingredients whenever possible, and then giving it a wash and, and a clean. And then I remove the kind of the, the flesh or like the pith I don't know if it would be called a pith, but the inside of the banana, I remove that compost or use that to make a tea to water my plants because there's still potassium and nutrients that could be fed to my plants at home. And then I marinate the peel or I chop it up and fry it. And yeah, you can make bacon out of it wow. or you can make pulled pork out of it. I mean, I've also blended the whole entire banana peel. I've actually put the whole entire banana, removing the stem and put the whole banana into a blender, made it into a smoothie and then use that kind of liquid to make banana bread. Uh, so it's edible. We just don't see it that way. Our minds, we're not educated to think banana peels are edible. This is the one ingredient that is often mentioned to me. What can you do with banana peels? 
I find it so fascinating and yeah. it's a great topic to to discuss. And I know this is somewhat separate, like completely, but you're just reminding me because you were talking about London that the last time I was in London, which was 2019, I like took three buses to go to this restaurant that had fish and chips made from banana leaf. And I know it's, do you know which restaurant I'm talking about, by the way? Because I completely forget the name of it. Is it's? I think it's in Soho. Uh, um, I'm not maybe sh- not. Maybe I don't know. Okay. I feel like that wouldn't have been so out of the way. But regardless, okay, yeah, it wouldn't be out of the way. But uh, uh, banana leaf, yeah. Anyway, I just the banana blossom. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. like, hmm, I am very uncreative. Clearly, I've been vegan for 20 years, and I'm like, uh, how, how do you eat coffee grounds? That's another thing that you yeah. talk about. Tell me more. Because you're, you're bringing a whole other level to coffee addicts here. <laughs> uh, sky's the limit, I think, when we look at ingredients. And I often look at ingredients and go, this is kind of the premise of whenever I'm developing a recipe, whether it's for content on social media or for its publication or for a book or a show idea, it's what can I do with this ingredient that would be different? I think simply just asking the question, what can I do with this? I think we need to ask ourselves those questions on a regular basis. What can I do with this? Or, and, and don't even apply that to food. Just apply that to trying to figure out your life. Or <laughs> I think if we just take a beat, we take a moment and think, how can I do this? Or what can I do with this to make it a little different? But coffee grounds are another ingredient that we can consume. I wouldn't consume all of the coffee grounds. I would consume a little bit of the coffee grounds, but it's another ingredient that we can use. So in my book, I use coffee grounds and add it to pancakes. So you have coffee ground pancakes. Mm. It just adds another, depending on the coffee bean, can add a floral or a nutty or, you know, fruity flavor to your pancakes. If you are, you know, if you're sensitive or you have that acute taste and smell to coffee, I would use it very sparingly. And you can also make body scrubs with the coffee grounds as well. So, you know, kind of de- detoxifies or makes your skin a little bit smoother too as well. Lovely. So, It's always thinking a little bit beyond, what can I do with this ingredient? I love that. I have to say, for all the times that I've been asked that ridiculous question that every vegan gets asked at least 10 times, which is, what would you do if you were on a deserted island? I just want to say, if I was on a deserted island and I could be there with one person, no offense to my wife, but like, Max, it's you and me, baby. Like, I would be like, what are you going to make for me? I'm like, now that we're here for the rest of our lives. Sorry, but that's, I mean, I love the way your mind works because my mind doesn't work that way at all. I I think everyone has their own, you know, special, unique ways, what they can offer in life. And for me, it's, I love being in the kitchen. I love cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what other ingredients do people not think about as ingredients? Like what gets wasted that you're like, wait, 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 don't throw that out. So we've got banana peels, we've got coffee grounds, like What else? I mean, I use my orange peels for cocktails, which feels very important. (laughs) That's it. That's yeah. Yeah. The peels are great. The peels can be dehydrated. You can actually blend the whole entire citrus. So you could kind of just pop it into a a high speed blender and blend it with a little bit of water and put it into an ice cube tray and freeze it. Ooh, I like that. So you, you, I mean, you can get creative if you want it to be a little bit sweeter. You can add a little bit of uh, a sweetener of some sort in there as well and, and freeze it. And I often do that with my citrus to elevate my cocktails or my non-alcoholic mm-hmm. drinks. Peels is a great one, but yeah, you can also dehydrate them to make powder from them after they've dried out. You could blend them with a little bit of salt, use that for your next rimmed 
drink as you salt rim your cocktail drink, your glass, and you can have a little bit of like dried, salted citrus on the rim. Other ingredients, some of the kind of obvious ones like broccoli stems and carrot tops and the tops of, um, I don't want to say courgette, um, zucchini. Mm-hmm. I've really adapted to the- That's okay. To, we have to, plenty of listeners there who are very happy right now that you said that. Great. I love that. So yeah, the tops of uh, courgettes and zucchinis, that kind of, it seems like a rough stem at the top of the vegetable. That could be chopped up. I use the whole entire thing. Great. The whole entire vegetable. Don't throw away the bottom bit, the top bit. Don't throw them away. All of it. Use it all. It's all edible. Strawberry tops. People are throwing away the tops of strawberries. Eat them. Okay. All right. Now, I'm. you know, it's so funny. The moment that I, and I'm going to speak on behalf of every vegan everywhere, the moment that we realized what aquafaba is, we all had like yeah. a collective mourning for all of the times that chickpea water went down the drain. And, yeah. you know, like, now I'm feeling like, oh my God, strawberry tops. Are you kidding me? Because I'm also like, I'm so precious that I, I think that there's a little bit of, it's not even just the top. There's a little bit of red. And I, I know you want to kill me now yeah. because what yeah. a terrible human. I clearly am. Now I feel bad. Now I feel like a terrible. Thank you, Max. Was that your goal? And this is <laughs> the end of our conversation. Yeah. Have a great day, everyone. See you on the island. Yeah. See you on the island. Um. By the way, we're having strawberries for the rest yes, of our time on the island. Great. Yeah. So I don't want people to think when they walk away from this conversation, Jasmine, to think, oh gosh, my individual purpose or change or impact on this planet it is causing the destruction of this planet. It's not. It, it's so much more than that. And I think we could all make small changes that will lead to a bigger impact. So I don't think there's, you know, there's a no better time than now to make those changes and slowly change and slowly evolve over time. Like that's the beauty of life. Like life is short, but we can make changes along the way. And who knows, we'll surprise ourselves. So yeah, the tops of strawberries can be consumed. It's just, it's a green leaf. It's fine. You know, I give it a wash and a rinse, make sure that there's no little buggies hiding underneath and that sort of thing. But I remember just looking at it. I, this is what I do. I go, I wonder if I can do something with this. Mm -hmm. And then I remember just eating it and going, oh, it was actually when I went strawberry picking in, in, Sounds so idyllic. Uh, strawberry picking in the UK and you're picking them and then you're just like popping them in your mouth and eating them and then you go and weigh the basket afterwards. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, I can actually eat the tops of these strawberries. I'm still here. I'm still alive. So Love yeah, it. I, I think it's it's just looking at ingredients a little bit differently. Now. Yeah, for sure. And how would you describe your cooking style? Meticulous, adventurous, spur of the moment, dangerous. Ooh. Uh, dangerous. I wish I was a little bit dangerous. No, I, I, luckily I haven't cut myself in the kitchen. I have, you know, nicked my finger from using, you know, brand new like microplanes or box graters. Did you know that avocado hand is an actual d- diagnosis? Because yeah. like, I was with my yeah. mother once when she got avocado hand and I had to take her to the hospital. It's like actually in the medical books, avocado hand. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When I see <laughs> When I see people cutting, not holding the knife properly, and especially my wife, um, <laughs> not using the kitchen equipment properly, I'm just like, oh my goodness. I I kind of, you know when people sometimes see blood and they like yeah. almost pass yeah. out? I almost, I almost get sick to my stomach when I see people <laughs> using kitchen knives improperly. So yeah, I'm, I'm very careful in the kitchen. 
Am I adventurous? Yes. Am I dangerous? No. Adventurous, creative, I kind of like being spur of the moment. It depends. I mean, this is how I started cooking. I looked in my fridge and thought, okay, what can I do here? What can I put together to make a meal so I can use up these last bits of food that I have? So then come Friday, I get my paycheck and then I can go to the supermarket again and buy more food. So it's, yeah, I like being creative. I think that's where, you know what? It still shocks me when sometimes I put food together, even if it's like not a quote unquote like recipe, like a classic traditional recipe. It's kind of just, I'm going to play around with some of these ingredients and make something out of it. It shocks me when things taste really good because I'm like, I didn't think I could do this and that and put that together and this spice and marinate with it or whatever it might be, whatever the technique might be. But I, I like being open-minded to cooking. Um, I think when we're open-minded, things are allowed to kind of access my mind and the way that I cook. So it keeps me open. So what foods should everyone have in the house, would you say? Mm-hmm. Ooh, this is a great question. I recently pretended that I was on an interview and I had asked myself that question. If this ever comes up, what three things will you have mm-hmm. in your in your back pocket to answer? And those are frozen peas, bread, and I think the last one was uh, tomato puree, tomato paste. Wow. So peas, I think peas are great because you can make pea fritters, you can smash them, you can blend them up um, to make it into like a, a smooth paste or a sauce or a dip. They're great on their own, steamed, you can fry them. They bulk out meals. And so, and they're usually cost effectively. They're, they're inexpensive. They're in the frozen section. You pop them in your freezer whenever you need them. They'll, they'll hang out there for, for months. Wow. Bread. Bread is another ingredient that I like. Could be relatively cheap. You can make it yourself at home and it'll be even cheaper and inexpensive to make if you have the time and the resources to make bread. Um, but bread can also bulk out a meal, uh, like Papa Pomodoro, like in soups. Ribolita, panzanella. I'm, I'm using all these kind of like poor Italian meals. I think that's what they would say. They're like poor Italian meals. And they use leftover bread to make these meals, put them in meatballs. And just for the record, I haven't said this. I normally don't say the word like vegan meatballs or vegan this or vegan that. I just say mm-hmm. it, it. For me, this is cooking. I don't put the word vegan on front of anything anymore. Though I eat vegan, I don't put that label on anything because sometimes I I catch more people yeah. um, that way and people see, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll use these ingredients instead and, and make this dish that Max is showing. Well, let's actually, let's unpack that a little bit because right when we yeah. started, <laughs> when we started chatting and I was kind of giving you the spiel I give all of the guests, one of the things I say is like, our listeners are already vegan or presumed to be. Mm. And, you know, frequently our guests are like, oh, what a relief. You know, because then they don't have to start with like, oh, meat is bad. They were just starting from that yeah. common place. And and so I said to you, which is probably a bit of a relief for you, uh, given the people who you're usually reaching. And you said that that's more complicated than that and that you might not contextualize your work that way. So tell me more about what you meant. Like, why did something catch you when I said, oh, our audience is already vegan? Yeah, because I, I often don't speak to vegan audiences, but the majority of my audience on social media from the last time I've done check-ins and polls and surveys is that 80 to 85% of my audience are not plant-based. And the majority of my following are buying my cookbook or cooking for my books or 
cooking the recipes I share on social media. So this is, you know, for me, it's really interesting. And, and then I, I go in a little deeper and I ask why they follow me. And people are looking for, they want to incorporate more plants on their plate. And that is the number one biggest factor. People want to incorporate more plants on their plate. I also think the reason why they might also follow me is that it's not preachy. It's not in your face. It's a, a bit more approachable. I'd love if everyone incorporated more plants on their plate. I think more people in, you know, in the global north should be eating more plant-based. And we need to head in that direction to lower our carbon emissions. But I think that that responsibility is on us here in the global north who are creating more carbon emissions and impact to the planet. But I, I think it has to do something, you know, I don't want to put labels on anything and I want people to, my whole thing is everyone's welcome to the table. We wouldn't be able to sit at a table if the person was cooking animal products. We wouldn't be able to sit at the table. But if I say everyone's welcome to the table, I'm cooking plant-based dishes, everyone can eat it. Everyone can. I've never met anyone or heard of anyone who says, actually, I'm, I can't eat fruits. I can't eat vegetables. I can't eat grains. I can't eat fungi. I can't eat these ingredients or I'm allergic to it or I'll die. You know, I've never met anyone who's ever said that, including spices. Spices are a plant. They come from a plant. So for me, it's, I think, making my dishes approachable for everyone. And if I can get those people who are not plant-based, who are not vegan to try some of my dishes, then maybe we can, you know, maybe they'll, they'll listen to our Hen House podcast right. or they'll come across Jasmine's page or they'll come across somebody else's page and recipes. And little by little, we can, we'll start to attract more people. I, I think it's more about attracting, and maybe this isn't a vegan friendly thing, but we're attracting bees with honey instead of, you know, with, with, is it sugar? Yeah. Yeah. So I know, I think that our audience would be mostly on aligned with, I can't speak for all of them, even though I pretend I can, would be very aligned with many of the things you just said. We're not trying to change the world in, in areas that aren't where we're necessarily like living and existing. I think we completely agree that it's people in the global north who need to be looking at what we're eating differently. There's our henhouse listeners, for the most part, I think, are extremely, extremely open minded to different ways of changing the world for animals. And certainly the way you're doing it is unique and very different from most of the people who we have on. We don't focus a lot on vegan food be because we're focusing more on animal advocacy. And obviously the default there is veganism. And we're like, very passionate about veganism, but we're usually focusing on on animals. And I have a question for you. There is a lot of back and forth about the importance of individual action to save the world and the animals and the importance of systemic action from government and industry. Mm. Some people say that individual action is pointless given the scale of the problem. Do you feel that individual action and systemic action go together? So individual action, like in your, in your platform, it would be like incorporating more and more plant-based foods and being much more cognizant of waste and living as waste-free as mm. possible. That would be individual action with a systemic action from the government and the industry might be, for one example, like subsidizing uh, fruits and vegetables to the same degree or much more so than like dairy farmers are subsidized, for example, that would be governmental chain mm, or mm, or mm. just kind of revisiting the nutritional requirements for children. Like those are just a couple examples. Do you feel that these go together or are you just like 
my lane is the individual action? Like, what are your thoughts? I don't want to put the pressure on us as individuals. I think it needs to be a collective, a collectiveness. And yeah, that may mean that the government also needs to play ball with us as well. I think it's such a, it's an interesting avenue to take if we're both on that together, both the government and both the individual, us are there as well, trying to create this change together. We do need to be in that room. And I recently read a quote from a climate activist from, I believe she's from Brazil or she's from South America and forgive me, I don't know, uh, Shea Bastida, I think is her name and, and forgive me on her, on her location or where she's from. But she says that the global South has a large population of people who are under the age of 30, about 87% of the global South are from around the age of wow. 30 and below. So when we're having these conversations on the global South and having these conversations about children and the youth, and we're talking about the climate, who's going to be impacted the most? And the room, when we're having these discussions, the room who are having that conversation should be represented of the people who are going to be impacted the most. So 87% of the room should be those who are going to be impacted the most. So I I think it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a, it's a challenge. It's a tough one. I think we're on the precipice of something happening where there is going to be change and and we see it slowly and we take those small victories Mm -hmm. whenever we can. And it's little by little, we chip away at it. I, I, you know, the top 100 companies in the world are creating, you know, 70 to 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. I was brought up told to turn off my lights and turn off the faucet and walk to work and ride a bike and eat local sourced food and, you know, all these things. And I'm doing it, but I look around and I sometimes feel a bit uh, depressed, not depressed, but defeated when there's still all this waste around us. I'm in a hotel room right now speaking to you and I'm looking out and I'm seeing a plane, a helicopter, another plane. I'm seeing all these flights and that, hey, that's all right. Fly if you need to fly, but there's just, it's this constant. It's like a greedy, unrelenting. Yes, I totally hear you. We take one step forward and then something else comes and then it's like two steps back and then one step forward and then two steps back. So it's going to be a slow grind, but I think it's about working in a collective, working with other like-minded people, joining forces, other forces, joining other forces to come together to make a bigger impact. So I think we all need to come together in the end. I totally agree with that. And also, I have to say, I know you were teetering on whether you're depressed about it or defeated. And as a Gen Xer, that is like, not that I want you to be sad, but it is sort of music to my ears to hear a millennial, presumably, be also depressed about it. Because I have such a, my generation is, we're just like all friggin' sitting on a beach, like wearing all black and like crying into our soy lattes because of how bad it is. Whereas I feel like millennials are much more hopeful. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm definitely making huge sweeping generalizations right now, but like, what do you think? Do you think that there's more hope in your generation and in younger generations? I am hopeful. I I have to have hope. And I think those who are in my generation and, and, and below, I, I think are also hopeful as well. I think we have to be, I think this is, like I said before, I I strongly feel we're on the precipice of something great happening, something huge that's going to shift and change. And, and it, it might take 
It might be a city. It might be a state. It might be a country. It might be, I don't know what it is, but I feel strongly that there's going to be some positive impact on society, on the planet um, that is going to benefit everyone. I don't know what that is. And, and I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm not looking into a crystal ball or anything, but there is after, you know, many, many years of trying and, and, and fighting for change and being a part of these protests and walking and marching and rallying and, and campaigning, I just feel like, where's this all leading to? So I, I have to have hope. I have to feel that there is going to be change. I, I don't want to live in the doom and gloom. I want to live in a happy, healthy, state of mind. And so I, I try to live that every single day and, and think, okay, I need to live and breathe that through my being every single day. And hopefully others will see that and we'll create more and more change. And, and I think the most impactful change that some people can make today is to join collectives, join groups, speak out, stand up, reach out to your local government, your council, your MPs, reach out to them and demand systemic changes. So yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's very hopeful to hear you say that. I have a few more questions for you, Max, but I want to save it for our bonus content. I want to talk to you about when food goes bad and what that means. But let's let's hold on with that. Max, before you go, can you tell our listeners how they can follow your work and support you and support your efforts? Yes, you can follow me on social media. I'm Max Lamana on all the platforms. You can find me on social media at Max Lamana. Head over to my page. In my link, in my bio, I often do cooking demonstrations, events, cooking classes, dinner parties, at residencies. I'm based in the UK, but I'm trying to get out to the US more. So keep your eyes peeled. Find out more there. And hopefully I get to cook for you someday. Keep your eyes peeled, but your bananas unpeeled because you can eat the whole banana. That's bananas. I see what you did there. Yeah, I'm always good for the dad joke. Thank you so much for joining us, Max. Hang on the line so we can chat a little bit more. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is deeply offensive. <laughs> it really is. Uh, this is from Hordes Dairyman. I have two uh, articles today from Hordes Dairyman. I guess they haven't extended the gender variety in their um, in their cohort. Anyway, repeat offenders should really be called. I just think one of the most interesting things about this article is the language offenders. Abby Bauer is talking about. One way to improve productivity and efficiency on farms is to simplify management. When it comes to making high-quality milk, Michigan State University's Pam Rugg, DVM, oh, don't you just love these vets, offered this straightforward piece of advice during the September Hordes Dairyman monthly webinar, call your chronic cows. As we all know, the word uh, call is is used instead of kill. It's interesting that it's 
that it's uh, it's so close. But yeah, kill your conic cows. Uh, I guess they could mean selling them off, but you know, there's no chance they're going to sell these cows off because these are the problem cows. The veterinarian and professor said that cows with a chronically high somatic cell count are prime candidates for removal from the herd. She's a veterinarian, you know? <laughs> Aren't you supposed to cure illness? They elevate bulk tank somatic cell count. I have no idea what that means. They're more likely to have clinical cases of mastitis. God forbid we should have to treat that, that you'd have to use more antibiotic treatments. Uh they are a threat for infecting other cows. You know, the best way to get rid of anybody who's sick so that other people don't get infected or other animals don't get infected is just kill them. That's the way. Um, this is another piece of language I love. Which cows would be candidates for departure? Departure. So they're offenders and they're going to depart, you know, then various illnesses that they might have and, uh, and, and all these things that could happen and why it's bad to keep them. Older cows with a history of more than three monthly somatic cell counts of over 200,000 and cows that maintain a high somatic cell count over two lactations should make a career change. You love them. Once more, Rook emphasized, call those chronic cows. They love their cows, you know? They just love them. All right, our other story from Horde Sterryman is really ironic. It's not about cows at all. You'll be glad to hear. Take... Take care of your heart for your family and farm. All right, they're talking about heart disease, how people who own dairy farms have to be careful about injury, but they have to also be careful about monitoring their personal health to avoid tragedy caused by conditions such as cardiovascular disease. Well, that's true. Heart disease is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. Well, that's true. It is often caused by high blood pressure. Like that's kind of cutting the causal chain off at an odd point because high blood pressure is a symptom of, of cardiovascular disease. It is cardiovascular disease. It's caused by something else. And we know what that is. They do suggest that that diet is one of the things that you should pay attention to. They also point out that adults in rural areas have a 19% higher risk of developing heart failure than urban residents. The Southeast, where risks are even greater, is known as the stroke belt. So why would that be? Could it have anything to do with diet? I don't know. Heart disease is impacted by things, they go on to say, we cannot control, like our family history, age, race, and gender. But some of the leading risk factors for high blood pressure are things we can affect. Diet, physical activity, stress levels, tobacco and alcohol use, and weight. Well, Diet may be kind of connected to weight in various ways, but you know. To fight elevated blood pressure, this person quoted in here, Siegfried, recommended eating a heart-healthy diet and limiting to alcohol and tobacco, some exercise, limiting stress. No indication as to what that diet should, should include. Absolutely not mentioned. Uh, this, did I mention this is a dairy site? Unbelievable. These people are unbelievable. All right, finally, this article sounds terrible. Sustainability scientist debunks oat versus dairy milk comparison. Uh, you know, I don't know. When I saw that headline, I just thought it was going to be bad. Though actually it's good. So maybe I just misread that headline. It starts off by pointing out that a lot of people are going more plant-based, partly in the hopes of reducing their environmental impact. And they're trying to eat less meat and trying to eat, drink non-dairy milk. And 
points out that oat milk produces three times less greenhouse gas per liter than dairy milk, um, according to calculations by the University of Oxford. But per gram of protein, oat milk actually produces more carbon dioxide than dairy milk. And then they quote the USDA or some data from the USDA, which says that whole cow's milk produces 0.9 kilograms of carbon dioxide per 10 grams of protein, while oat milk produces 1.1 kilogram. So that's a lot more. So what are they saying? What are they saying here? They're just saying that that's not a fair comparison. And this is in Newsweek. (laughs) I like that. So they're quoting this sustainability scientist, Andrew Berardi, who uh, is pointing out that this kind of comparing things on a protein basis is, quote, irresponsible because it neglects the fundamental rule of life cycle analysis, an appropriate functional unit. So he points out that unless you can make the case that people drink oat milk for its protein content, then it doesn't make any sense to compare it on the basis of protein content. And, you know, there's people drink various beverages for a a lot of different reasons, not not necessarily because they think they're not getting enough protein. Foods have to be compared, he says, on the basis of functional units, which represent the main purpose a person consumes them. In the case of dairy and oat milk, maybe calcium would be an appropriate functional unit. You know, maybe it's just deliciousness because oat milk is so good. I don't know. If you are looking for higher protein milk alternatives, he recommends opting for soy or pea-based milk drinks. He's not recommending uh, cow dairy. In addition to greenhouse gas emissions, land use and water use are two big factors for many types of milk. None of these comparisons are simple. And he does say it's complicated, but it's important just to, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Do your best. But there's no reason to think that the the be-all and end-all of comparing milks is protein. Yay, right in Newsweek. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the Flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a Flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week.